Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we head to Shanghai to find out what life is like with a two-month COVID lockdown starting to lift and what the future holds for China's zero-COVID policy. We speak to a CEO in Singapore about how a consistent labor shortage there drove innovation, including the use of robotics to help build that void, and how the city-state may provide a glimpse into our future as well. Foreign Affairs Minister of Lithuania joins us to talk about the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on Baltic countries, why they want a larger NATO presence in the region, what they're hearing from Canada about that, and how the country managed to become the first in Europe to completely cut off all Russian energy imports. But first, Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives have rolled to another majority government in Ontario, improving on the 76 seats won in 2018. What was the key to their success this time? And what can other conservative parties across the country and the federal conservatives learn from it? But first, speaking of taking measure, as I mentioned, Ontario voters headed to the ballot box today to decide who will govern the province for the next four years. Incumbent Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives had a very sizable lead in the polls heading in, in the opinion polls, uh, really leaving it to the NDP and Andrea Horvath and the Liberals and Stephen Del Duca to battle it out for the title of official opposition. Well, this were a boxing match, and it's always a bit painful to use sporting analogies when it comes to things as important as democracy, but let's stick with it, because if this was a boxing match, this was a early first round knockout. Global News, at 11 minutes past nine Eastern, that's 11 minutes after the polls closed, had this to say. Wow, that was fast. Global News projecting that the progressive conservatives will form a majority government. They have or are expected to secure at least 63 seats in the legislature. Ten minutes after the polls closed is when this call has been made. Ten minutes. Okay, I had 11 on my clock, but if they want to say 10, it was 10. Whatever it was, it was over fast. Uh, right now, at latest count, again, up for grabs, 124 seats. You need 63 for majority. At last check, it was 80 seats for Doug Ford and the Conservatives. That's ahead of the 76 they won in 2018. Uh, 29 for the NDP, down from 40 in 2018. Only nine for the Liberals, just up from seven uh, in 2018, but still below the 12 they need for official party status. And uh, the Green Party one, Mike Schreiner holding on to his seat in Guelph. Uh, they were looking to add to that as well. So what does this all tell us other than that, than that the polls were right about who was going to win? Well, to break it all down, I'm joined by Christine DeClercy. She's an associate professor of political science at Western University in London, Ontario. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Ben. Well, you know, we often blame the polls for being wrong, at least in terms of who was going to win. This one seems to have gotten it right. In fact, if anything, they might have underpredicted how well Doug Ford was going to do, at least according to what we know so far. I agree. It's been a very good night for um, Mr. Ford's campaign strategy, strategy team. And um, yeah, the, the, there is sometimes uh, a circumstance where uh, the polls overestimate the seat count, but that is not the case tonight. What does it say then about uh, about the campaign that he ran? Because in many ways, he ran the typical front-runner campaign, which is just don't make any mistakes. Don't say anything that's going to ch- turn a tide that seems to be comfortable. And it was kind of a sleepy campaign, it seemed. Well, well it's it, it's true. Mr. Ford was quite cautious. You know, he he carefully managed his media appearances. He carefully managed his campaign stops. 
but um, the this sort of um, uh, hides a reality, which is that his campaign team very carefully um, set out uh, a strategy to to not only hold the seats that they had, but pick up, up some seats. And you know, they, we're still waiting for all the all the results to shake out, but. For example, it looks like um, Mr. Ford picked up uh, a riding called Wind- Windsor Tecumseh, which mm-hmm. really traditionally is a new Democratic Party riding. So, um, you know, it's true he was a front runner and sort of trying to stay above the campaign, the fray of the campaign. But I think also his team clearly had objectives that they, they that they went out and, and went after. Yeah. Where did he win this, do you think? What was the message that he was delivering and why was it resonating? It resonated even more this time than it did back in 2018, it appears. I think there are several factors that will have to be examined, you know, as in in, in the weeks after, after the election, once we have uh, some data and a little bit more insight into who won and where and by how much. But um, there are a couple of, of key things to keep in mind. Um, first, this this still uh, is is an election that happened in a pandemic. And, you know, across the Federation, there have been several provinces, BC is one of them, that had to go to the polls in the middle of a pandemic. And that produces different kinds of challenges, like in this election, for example, there were well over 800 fewer polls uh in which to cast one's vote because of the pandemic, for example. So the point is that the pandemic in and of itself certainly affected this this election in different ways. Um, second, I think the um, dynamic between Mr. Ford and Ms. Horvath in terms of competing for the labor vote is a very interesting aspect of this campaign. Going back to what I just said about Windsor Tecumseh, so certainly, right. Mr. Ford's capacity to to eat into um, the the labor vote in this election is important. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we know the NDP still had support from the big public sector unions, but a lot of the other unions were leaning over towards Doug Ford, which might have made a difference. Certainly, when I was uh, covering election campaigns, say with Jack Layton, we used to spend a lot of time in Windsor to come see, or at least in that what was that provincial riding uh, encompassing a larger federal riding. Speaking of the big battle for second place, it didn't turn into much of a battle at all. It's been a pretty dismal night. I mean, the popular vote for the Liberals isn't too too bad, but it's been a pretty dismal night for the Liberal Party. And Stephen Del Duca has lost his seat again. Um, He didn't win it last time. He didn't win it again tonight. So a lot of soul searching going on for the party that was in power for uh, 16 years. That's right. It's certainly a a tough night for liberal partisans here in Ontario. At the same time, I think, um, you know, the party did pick up a few few seats, uh, at least at this point in time, it seems like. And um, their performance tonight underscores how badly um, the party was cast to the margins in 2018. So, um, you know, for the Liberals, I guess the the downside is they're, they're once again the third party. They are, will not be the official opposition going forward. The upside is there has been some slow... Uh, <laughs> Uh, expensive uh, improvement in their standing, and certainly they're they're looking at four more years uh, at least of of rebuilding in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, they won't get official party status unless they win 12 seats, and they're only at nine now. Ironically, though, they have a very, very tiny advantage in overall votes over the NDP, who have 20 more seats to them. How about for the NDP tonight? I know Andrea Horvath, this was her fourth election. They did well in the last time. They were looking to build on their 40 seats. It looks like tonight they might win 30, maybe 31. Um, Obviously, her future's in doubt, too. Yeah, I, I, I guess you could look at it two ways. You could look at it as, as um, and in line with what I was just saying about his, her contestation with Mr. Ford, that she lost um, eight valuable unions uh, to Mr. Ford. Or you could look at it uh, and appreciate the fact that she has uh, secured um, a, 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 a landmark victory. She has returned the New Democratic uh, party to the official opposition benches and official opposition status twice in a row. Um, so certainly her party has has gains that have been made tonight, and uh, I'm not necessarily sure that her political future is, is over. I think in many regards she fought a very smart and strategic campaign, and she's going back to Queen's Park as the leader of the official opposition, which in Ontario that's not normally the position that the NDP leader holds. No, certainly. And and certainly the efficiency of their vote is is, is remarkable because they look like they're going to take about 30 seats with the same number of overall votes, same percentage of the popular vote as the Liberals themselves. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back with Christine, Christine DeClercy, we'll talk a bit more about uh, what what this all says about uh, the future. Of, you know, certainly the progressive vote not being able to unite is interesting uh, because they did, again, the Liberals and the NDP between them have more votes than the progressive conservatives do, but uh, they fought throughout this election. And also just what this might mean for other conservative leaders across the country who are looking at this, wondering what Doug Ford's magic formula was, because he's heading to a big win tonight. That's next. We have to work together to make sure this province is climate ready, to make sure that our infrastructure can withstand the storms we've experienced this past month, and to make sure that our economy is ready to be successful in the emerging markets of the new climate economy. Let's work together. There is Green Leader Mike Schreiner. He won his seat in Guelph today. He was looking to add a few more uh, colleagues uh, to the to sit with him. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. I'm speaking with Christine uh, DeClercy of uh, Western University, and we're talking about the election results in Ontario tonight. Really not a surprise. Uh, Doug Ford, the Progressive Conservatives, with a big win. It looks like they're on their way to at least 80 seats at this point, which is better than the 76 they had in 2018. The NDP at 29, the Liberals at 9, a tough night for them. Their leader, Stephen Del Duca, losing his seat again for the second straight election. And the Greens, as you heard there, just one seat. That is Mike Schreiner's. He won that back in 2018. Um, any, any less, I mean, the Greens, I thought tonight they might do a bit better. He had a good debate, Mike Schreiner, but it doesn't look like it's translated to votes. Uh, well, yes, Mr. Schreiner had a, a very good performance in the debate. And I think as well, you know, his his uh, four rookie years in the legislature, he demonstrated that he's a very serious, affable politician. He made good connections across the aisles. Um, and yes, it is true that the, the Greens uh, didn't, uh, have not yet picked up another seat beside Mr. Shiner's, but it looks like they might um, have some increase in their vote share. And also, I mean, a big gain, I I believe, in this election was that the Greens under Schreiner put together a platform 
that moves the Green Party beyond its sort of normal position as a, as a single issue or a, a single subject party. And the party platform really, I thought, was quite well crafted to appeal to urban and suburban and rural voters. So, you know, he may yet in the future gain, uh, reap the gains of some of the foundation work he's done with his party in this election. Yeah, not unlike we saw with the the Greens here in British Columbia as well. Um, so if I'm a conservative uh, politician in another province, for instance, a premier who's just had to resign in Alberta, or I'm running for the leadership of the federal conservative party, and I look look over at what Doug Ford's done in Ontario tonight, what lessons am I taking away from this, if any? Well, I think Mr. Ford has shown that populism as a political force in Canada remains uh, a, a useful tool for politicians. Mr. Ford has, um, in this campaign, I think, embraced populism. His government in the last year has pushed through the House several important pieces of legislation deliberately designed for um, the betterment of some of the lives of working people. Uh, so there's a lesson here definitely for conservative politicians, both federally and provincially, that uh, you know, espousing populism as an ideology, um, at least in Ontario, has worked pretty well. But in this case, I also noticed that Doug Ford didn't make uh, Ottawa a punching bag. In fact, um, the Prime Minister appeared at an event with him right before the election. So it's sort of a populism without sort of burn it all down uh, connotations as well. Uh, well, that's true, yet Mr. Ford, it must be remembered, you know, earmarked $30 million uh, to fight the federal government on the carbon tax, and he went all the way to the Supreme Court. True. So while while relations right now are cordial, I don't know that they will necessarily endure uh, in, in that way going forward. So is this, I mean, is this really Doug Ford's win overall? I mean, is this more Doug Ford's win than the progressive conservatives win? Or in many ways, is it just 16 years of liberal rule? They're not coming back. The NDP can't win. And the de facto winners are the conservatives. I think it's a combination of factors. First, um, you have to give credit to Mr. Ford. You know, he he sort of fell into the provincial party leadership almost by accident uh, and he had a very challenging first four years. You know, COVID, <laughs> COVID would challenge any leader. Um, by the same token, there are other factors affecting this election, like, you know, again, COVID and its effect on campaigning and turnout. Early reports are that turnout is going to be pr- pretty low. It looks like I haven't seen any official figures, and, and that inevitably affects the vote. Plus, I think, um, you know, the Liberal Party's time in the wilderness is not yet over. And that matters in Ontario, which historically alternates between the Conservatives and the Liberal Party. Well, Christina Clarcy, thank you so much. I guess we we thought this was going to be the outcome, and this is what the outcome was. So thanks so much for explaining why it shook down the way it shook down. I appreciate it. It was very nice speaking with you. For now, we head to Shanghai, the country, China's economic center, a global trade hub, um, one of the largest cities in the world. It has been virtually locked down for months now uh, because of an outbreak of COVID-19. Well, at midnight local time yesterday, those restrictions were started 
to relax, or they're starting to relax them to allow most people to move around freely in that city of some 25 million. There are a significant number who will still remain confined to their homes, but the vast majority of people are out. Um, the Post, this is the South China Morning Post, Shanghai video correspondent Thomas Yao went for a quick wander in his neighborhood. No more barriers. No more mass PCR testing. No more big whites sitting in front of our apartment buildings. For many Shanghai residents, today is the first time in over two months when they can venture outside their apartment compounds. No strings attached. So after more than 60 days, uh, Shanghai has officially ended its lockdown uh, today on 1st of June. Uh, there's no work up yet, no celebrations. It ends uh, just like that, and as if nothing has ever happened. That is the South China Morning Post's Shanghai video correspondent, Thomas Yao, taking a wander through his hood uh, in Shanghai after he was, uh, like so many others, uh, were allowed to finally wander after uh, more than 60 days of lockdown. Well, joining me now from Shanghai is someone we spoke to right near the beginning, I think, of this lockdown, at least not much more than a 20, 30 days in, uh, Canadian Carl Bro, who's the CEO of Simon Engineering and uh, a Shanghai resident. Thank you so much for uh, for speaking to me again, Carl. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. So, I mean, I think back when we spoke earlier, um, Samen Energy. Sorry, I got I forgot a letter in there. CEO of Samen Engineering. Um, back when we spoke in 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 April, it was just beginning. It was, it was just beginning, and here we are in June, and it's finally come to an end. What was uh, what was that like for you and for your neighbors? Well, it became, I would say we went through different phases, probably, you know, at the beginning, actually, we were supposed to be locked down for five days and it was a Thursday. So we were sort of almost thinking, okay, great. So a long weekend coming up, uh, of course, you know, that five days extended to over 60 days for us. So we did go through a different sort of a bit of a roller coaster of emotion here. So going from uh, the beginning was fine. And then we, uh, in the middle, I think it, ourselves, we, we started to get worried because we had no sort of uh, clear indication of when it would end. And then, uh, you know, of course, you know, we didn't, we only had food for five days originally. So how do we get food and everything? But then towards the end, since we sort of got used to it and then uh, things were a little bit easier actually the last two weeks, but it's been, uh, it's been quite a, quite a, quite an emotional ride for us and for most people here. Yeah. Talk to me about that because, uh, you know, we spoke to some other people there and it just got very, I suppose, depending on your living situation and whether you have kids and school and so on, but it got to be quite the weight, right? Just trying to live day in, day out without that being able to move around such a vibrant city. Absolutely. And then, uh, and then you know, every people sort of uh, live that, sort of went through that differently to a certain extent, you know, there's about 25 million people here. So, one could say there's 25 million different stories of you know how people went through this, but I uh, I was actually a big what they call big white right with sort of a volunteer helping with different things throughout the crisis here you know bringing food to the elderly uh, helping with PCR testing uh, uh, bringing people to the hospital uh, so uh, I had quite a bit of visibility you know with sort of individual people and I I could see uh, you know especially either people that were alone. You know, just imagine you've been, you've been you're you're alone in your apartment, very small apartment, and then uh, maybe I don't know, maybe you smoke cigarettes, maybe you like alcohol, you know. So you were going through these different sort of uh, 
cravings, I would say, and that add maybe some financial stress. I mean, you could really feel some of the people there were deeply distressed. So, and, and, and I'm sure you saw that maybe about a month ago. And that sort of distress really came out in social media with people sort of shouting on their, uh, you know, outside their homes and everything. But towards the end, it seems things were getting a little bit more better. What, what I would like to say also is, uh, is about, you know, how we feel. It's, it's really strange, you know, like two days ago, it's like, it's done. And for us, really, life just like that went to completely normal. We went to work yeah. in the morning, and then we came back. It's, it's just as weird now it is as it was three weeks ago, feels like. So yeah, that's that's what uh, we played a little piece of uh, video before you were on. I, I imagine you listened to it. He referred to the big whites, of course, which is all the different volunteers in their hazmat suits, right, walking around uh, doing the yep. PCR testing. So, so I mean, we saw some fireworks. I guess there were some cheers when the clock struck midnight. But all in all, it seemed like for a city of twenty five million, it seemed like a fairly sedate, uh, but um, you know, quite normal return to the way things were. But but it's uh, but it's not quite there yet, right? There's still quite a. I imagine there's still a lot of stuff in place that you have to go through that that wasn't there before i think so but i think that's very dependent on where you are and essentially maybe the recent uh, conditions where there are cases for example in your neighborhood or in your district uh i just happen to be uh, lucky i guess because i live in, i myself my home here and also our office are both in districts where there was no cases recently or very little so so for us it's really the it's like the breaker you know, totally switched on and then things are back to normal. But it's true also, as you said, that there's, a, you know, for example, if you're living in the neighborhood where for some reason there was cases recently, while well, some are still actually under lockdown. And then, of course, some areas where I, I know of also some offices and some areas which we still have high restrictions. So it's, it's, uh, it varies quite a bit. But my for friends here in Shanghai is that for most people, uh, things, went back to normal essentially uh, two days ago at midnight. Yes. It felt almost like New Year's Eve, you know. With the, yeah, it, it did, I, sure. I, we could even hear them from outside our home. It's like everybody shouting and the fireworks. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's a bit of a strange feeling. Well, that's, I mean, if, if, if listeners have never been to Shanghai, it's kind of hard to describe Shanghai because it is so big and so busy, especially if you're Canadian, you think of Toronto as being a big place. Going to Shanghai is a, just a completely different experience from any big Canadian city. It is just massive and it never stops, you know, and it's packed and not always, but it's just a busy place. It's, it was impossible to imagine what it might be like shut down. Because it feels like you're you're trying to you know stuff a genie in a bottle. Like, but uh, I'm glad to hear it's coming back to normal. Are there still sort of I mean, in terms of like QR code stuff, and I've been seeing some reports about that of sort of tracking and so on. There's still a lot of things that we might not be familiar with in, in Canada. Are there? Uh, yes. So when we say back to normal, it's still not quite the same meaning as what you would say back to normal in Canada. <laughs> so yes, it's, uh, we still have, uh, you know, it totally. So there's tracking apps here, which are required for just about everything. I mean, we do have to ch- show our QR code when we go back in the, in the office building, which, which was the case before as well. Uh, there's also a tracking app, which says in which city you've been. So for example, if you happen to have been going through or in a city where there was cases recently, that creates creates a lot of restrictions for you essentially you need to quarantine for 12 for 14 days and then um and then uh, that's but that's about it i think uh, in terms of yeah. uh, everyday life that's uh, those are the two main differences you know of course the 
a bit of the apprehension that we have now, especially based on what we know from you know Canada and other countries, is okay. Now things are opening up. We just hope that it's not going to be like in two or three weeks, right? We start to see cases rising again, and then we go back into lockdown, right? So, but we don't know. But uh, we just that's our hope for now. Carl, that is a perfect segue because after this, we'll talk a bit about whether there's any tolerance for doing this again and just what that means, perhaps, for China's zero COVID policy, at least as far as Shanghai is concerned. Uh, I'm speaking with Carl Bro. He's the CEO of Simon Intelligent Manufacturing, and we'll be back with more from Shanghai right after this. Carl Bro, the CEO of Salmon Intelligent and Manufacturing and a Shanghai resident, is our guest this half hour. He's in Shanghai, where on June the 1st at midnight, so not that long ago, a couple of days now, June 1st at midnight, the lockdown. More than 60 days people have been locked down, really not able to move around much at all in the city uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, so it, it really begs the question, Carl, after this, I mean, if in fact there were to be another outbreak, is there any patience you think left in that city to go through this, something even shorter again? Um, well, I would say, I would answer that by, you know, if you look at the, what our friends are doing and just the post on social media, uh, we can just see that people are buying freezers. You know, they're they're <laughs> improving their internet. Uh, they're, uh, for, I mean, if we if we just look at ourselves, we're lucky because we have a, a nice backyard here. So we are, you know, we we started gardening. So we, you know, this just, we already went to the sort of gardening center where we bought a whole bunch of equipment and you know, uh, vegetable seeds and things like this. And so 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 i would say that we uh no matter what people say it's pretty obvious to me that people are sort of preparing <laughs> you know it's yeah. like a, a bit of a bunker mentality i guess where we're sort of preparing ourselves just in case this ever happens again so but it's yeah. it, it'd be tough yeah everyone on their little desert island getting ready for the next <laughs> for the next wave um <laughs> yeah, pretty much well, in terms, in terms of just, for, I mean, I, obviously you run a, a big business there. In terms of just the economic impact, we know obviously that within the city of Shanghai, obviously it had an impact. But uh, how's that? How's that been? And and how easily will it bounce back? Uh, well, it was very difficult for some manufacturers. You know, entities. Of course, if you if you're a company like more a service company where people can work from home efficiently, then it's okay. For us, uh, the manufacturing part where we do more technical procurement, so so that worked okay at the distance. But also, we also have a factory where we do assembly, and obviously that completely stopped for two months. Um, we, um, I guess, a little bit similar to what happened in Canada last year. Uh, we are we are seeing now there's going to be support for companies here in, in China. And it's already been announced. You know, delay different types of uh, of tax uh, credits, and uh, we are uh, the there. There's also subsidies for for rent, uh, other types of subsidies. That, so there will be help for the companies that were located here in Shanghai and that were hit hard by the uh, by the by essentially by the lockdown. And most, the one that are hit, obviously, very hard seems to be the case almost every time are the restaurants, you know, and the hotels. So there are special programs to be able to help the, the companies that are in that field. But uh, but it was a hard hit because you, you compound the hit of lockdown onto all the other things that have been happening last year, you know, increased transportation costs, you know, all the, there was already some complications due to uh, the pandemic uh, running a business here. Of course, uh, you know different raw material costs increasing. Uh, so, so it's been uh, it's been challenging as a as a company as an enterprise. We're, we're lucky because uh, things are turning down a little bit because you know there's a bit of a survivor thing going in. And so, you know, companies that are still strong today, and I, I think we we can consider this such a company. 
it's uh, there's less and less of those companies remaining. So for the survivors that are here, it's 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 been actually a pretty good few months for us. Uh, for those of us over here who rely so much on Chinese manufacturing and exports uh, and imports over here, of course, uh, will we see any effect of all this? Will there be a lingering effect here that we just haven't seen yet? I think uh, there would the effect you're already seeing, I think, because it, it, some of the complications started already more than a year ago of, you know, sort of a push on inflation and some some things which are just not available when you go to the store. Uh, but then I think I, it's interesting because I was, I was giving a conference yesterday and there was another speaker with me and he was an expert on logistics. And he was saying that there's actually because this uh, sort of shortage of transportation, especially sea transportation, came in about more than a year ago, almost a year and a half ago now. There's actually, there was a, you can see that there's a huge spike in purchasing of uh, sort of a, a capacity, you know, boats, large container boats, large uh, roll-on, roll-off boats, so this type of uh, bulk boats that were purchased about a year and a half ago. And now they expect that in the six, next uh, six to 12 months or so, those new uh, boats will be coming into. Uh, I mean, they will just start to be used, I guess, and then, and then it should. It could probably go the other way. There will be maybe an excess. They estimate that there might be an excess of sort of offer based on the demand for sea transportation. So, in any case, um, most experts would think that within a year or so, issues this type of logistic types of issues should disappear within twelve months or so. Oh, interesting, because it really has been such a huge story over here with just the delays, container ships blocked on our own ports, not being able to get in, empty containers uh, moving around, our, going back to Asia from here. Uh, I, I guess with the last 90 seconds I have, Carl, just your, your lasting memory of those two months, uh, what did you learn and what would you like to not have to do again? <laughs> Well, I, I wish I wish some the things I learned, whatever it is I learned, I just wish I never have to use that again, right? But still, I would say, um, uh, you know, in in the end, it's it's about uh, you know, I just spent some time here with my wife and everything. I think it was you know, I started gardening, and not to sound too cute, but it's true, you know, I sort of turned back to sort of simpler things and then get to enjoy every day, and I think that's. Uh, that's that's a lesson I guess I should know I should have learned before now have this event go through but I think that's true you know I mean in the end for us uh, sort of psychologically it was hit at hard at the beginning but then it just seems at some point we we same we seem to got gotten used to it and, and and it was okay you know I think that the, the elephant in the room in these type of events is really the psychological impact on it has on, on people sure. all around us so I would say maybe to answer your question properly I think I mean the most important Thing we have to be sort of taken care of is through through this type of that is really our sort of emotional or, or mental health to say the, the right word and you know just to be careful sleep well try to exercise even though we're inside and, and these are the things i think in the long term that help us make it through these type of sort of very stressful event in a few words what was the first thing you went and got when you got out of there what was the first thing you bought <laughs> the first thing that you missed i, I bought some a good bottle of red bordeaux <laughs> there you go. Carl Bro, thank you so much for your time tonight. Great to catch up. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we've spoken recently about just how much Canadian businesses are struggling to find staff, particularly in the service industry. Uh, there are four higher signs where I am in Victoria, in just about every restaurant and coffee shop, every window you can see one. Restaurants are struggling with staff shortages, coffee shops struggling. 
with staff shortages. Well, Singapore is a city-state, no stranger to labor issues traditionally. It pretty much relies on workers from abroad to fill a lot of positions that need filling. And during the pandemic, that was even a bigger problem with hundreds of thousands fewer workers available. So desperate times or difficult times, of course, call for innovation and new measures. So Singapore is uh, looking to or has turned to more robotics to try to figure out some of these staffing issues, including for customers facing or customer facing tasks to fill the void. One of them is called Ella. It is a robotic barista. And here's what people have to say about it. It's quite simple, easy to use. The, the app is simple, very easy to use. Just a few clicks, you can get your drink. This, but this, this app is, is, is good. It's really cool. Like you can just on a click, on a few clicks and you can get the coffee. Come and meet Ella. Come and meet Ella. Come and meet Ella. Come and meet Ella. <laughs> so Ella, popular um, and uh, pretty pretty cool looking. It does look like one of those robotic arms you see in a on an autom- on a sort of a uh, automotive assembly line making coffee. So is Singapore's experience with uh, something like Ella and others uh, a glimpse into our future as well? And what challenges and benefits? could it bring? Joining me now from Singapore is Keith Tan. He's the founder and CEO of Crown Digital, the creators of Ella. Keith, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating story because if I understand correctly, you left finance, uh, wealth management, to start a coffee company, not a digital company. And here we are. That's right. I mean, that was back in um, 2015. Um, I was having Starbucks every day um, as, um, you know, in in finance. And I was just got married and I thought, you know, study for me, I want to build something for myself. And coffee was something that I was passionate about. And I got into the coffee business. And back then, um, nothing much, not really digital. It was um, a a traditional Italian themed cafe. Uh, called Crown Coffee. And then uh, since then, we have pivoted into tech. And today we are a full stack startup. Um, you know, we are in the design of software, um, the robotics automation, as well as a coffee shop. So three in one. <laughs> so, but this was really born of necessity to some experience. I gather that that pretty early on, you figured out that the real challenge with your business was trying to hire and keep staff. Yeah, that was the biggest pain point for us. Um, at one point, I had four locations, and I was struggling with um, with labor. Um, that was something that I knew with my eyes wide open that it is the biggest challenge. So I've automated uh, my coffee uh, making process with um, with a super automated machine from Switzerland, Ephesus. Um, but then it's still the ordering process, and then dealing with um, um, people opening shops, you know, and if they don't turn up for work. You know, I, I have to be the one and um, it's just not scalable and, um, and and we're relying on a lot of foreign labor um, because the local labor force don't want to take on this job. Um, and um, it, it's just a shrinking of, you know, um, um, resource that we've got and we're, we're fighting with everyone else on and the wages are going up. Um, and it's just not sustainable. So it was clear um, then, you know, I, I've already automated my coffee in a sense with um, the super automated coffee machine and consistency was key for us because um, the customers are drinking it every day. If, you, know, um, you know, and with humans, you get inconsistencies as well. That was when I thought, you know, let's look at, 
you know, robotics and see what we can do to automate the entire process, right? And um, that's the journey we've taken um, about three years ago. And today we have a market ready and we've launched with Ella. Yeah, tell me about Ella because it's uh, to watch it. It's a pretty fascinating looking machine or robot to say the least. Uh, you set up these are sort of into, these are stalls that are about five meters by five meters, uh, and um, and it's all automated, right? It is. It is. It's fully autonomous. So customers are um, they download our mobile app, um, and it's um, you know you can try downloading it right now. It's available in the App Store or, or Google Play Store, um, and you can choose your drinks you want. Um, the location that you want to pick it up from, it's Apple Pay, Google Pay, it's all integrated, um, and then place your order. Um, that goes to the cloud, and then Ella, our six-axis robot arm, uh, will receive the order and play and, and, and prepare it real time. And uh, when the coffee is ready, you receive a notification. Um, it's, it comes in as a, a form of a QR code. Uh, you need, when you arrive in front of Ella, you need to scan the QR and then the pigeonhole, we call it, um, will rotate and you get to pick up your coffee and yeah, that's it. So that is really fast. The process is about within a minute. And um, we have four sprouts. So it, it's doing four cups simultaneously. So that equates to a very high throughput. Um, we can heat a peak of 200 cups an hour, uh, which is, you know, four times faster than what a human barista can do. And that is available 24-7. So uh, with consistency as well. So, and this, there's been quite an expansion, I understand, not only just in Singapore, but, uh, but I, I noticed there's one in, in Japan as well. So how fast, how fast has it grown? So um, we were, you know, we were um, that cafe operator that was, um, you know, building the robot. And we did a lot of exhibitions. Um, we brought Ella to New York with Intel. So, you know, we were doing a lot of um, testing and, um, and um, East Japan Railway Company, um, they were introduced to us through, um, through Jetro. Um, and that was the market that I was looking for because Japan is facing a chronic issue with labor. And, um, and you know, when I was visiting Japan, I see a huge, a lot, a lot of um, human traffic through the train stations, and that's a very big part of the the daily lives in in Tokyo. And I thought, you know, with the high throughput of Ella and the small footprint, um, it's easily deployable in the train stations. And um, I reached out to them, and um, they came by, they assessed us, and they said, you know, this is exactly what we're looking for. And um, you know, we could just buy your machines, but that is not good enough. We have to invest in you. So we got our seat funding from East Japan Railway Company in December 2020. And um, since and so last year in December, we built a system that is um, ready for Japan. And uh, during the pandemic, um, Japan was locked down, but um, we did. We deployed it in Tokyo and Yokohama stations. And I mean, do people, I gather, I mean, from the clips we played earlier, people are satisfied. Do people miss the human experience or this is really for high oh, traffic? So this is, yeah. So this is, um, so we, we came, okay. So we, we also call ourselves the experience integrators, right? So um, I, we understand how the art of making coffee and making it consistently. So the product side of things, it's, um, it's, it's good good quality, very high, um, it's artisanal quality. And um, the user experience, that's something that we focus on. And um, so um, Ella doesn't do latte art. It's about the speed and the, the quality. And it's really for grab and go. People who are, who are on the move um, and in, in, in like a train stations or in the airports where you just want to grab and go, 
um, is not to replicate a dine-in experience like what you, you get in Starbucks, where they are selling the third space. Um, for Ella, it's really about getting your caffeine fix fast, efficient, and then uh, fast-free, right? So that is the value proposition that we're very clear about. Um, and this is where if you're looking at, like, if you're rushing for work in the morning, you know, you're, you're rushing and you have no time to talk to anyone. You just want to grab your coffee fast and, and it has to taste good and at the right price. So that's where we are focused on. Um, so that is something obviously new, you know, uh, for a lot of users. Um, and as soon as they try it the first time, they got it. They're like, this is, this is um, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> and they'll come back. And, they, and that allows them to pre-order ahead of time. So in the train, um, they could order um, when they're arriving you know, and remotely, right, through their mobile phone. And when they arrive, the coffee is ready, just grab and go. So that saves a lot of time for people who are on the move. Um, and that's, that's something that customers are, are appreciating out of Ella's um, use case. Yeah. I'm speaking with Keith Tan from Singapore tonight. He's the founder and CEO of Crown Digital, which began began its life as Crown Coffee um, and is now uh, expanding into something much bigger, including Ella, the robotic barista that we've been talking about. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about um, you know how robots are changing employment. Certainly, Singapore uh, and as uh, as Keith was mentioning, Japan are countries that face huge labor issues when it comes to uh, to filling lots of positions. Uh, you know, robotics are really a no brainer when it comes to to trying to provide those kinds of services in other countries it's more you know it's more nuanced it's more uh certainly more uh you know contradictory or at least it can be more controversial uh we'll talk about that after this I'm speaking with Keith Tan from Singapore this half hour he's the founder and CEO of Crown Digital it began life as Crown Coffee but uh, like Many of us around the world right now, uh, there were labor shortages. Singapore has always faced uh, some labor issues when it comes to uh, filling some positions, heavily reliant on uh, labor from outside of Singapore. And of course, during the pandemic, that became even more of a challenge. And so the answer for a lot of organizations, a lot of companies there has been robotics, or at least trying to turn to automation to try to fill that void. And uh, Crown Digital is no different. They have something called a robotic barista called Ella. They've opened uh, these uh, five by five meter uh, stalls in different areas. Areas, high traffic areas in Singapore. There's one in Japan, a couple in Japan, in Japan as well now, uh, that essentially turn out coffee, good coffee fast, uh, made by um, made by a robot. But the kiosks themselves, though, still involve uh, a human presence, don't they, Keith? Um, we have um, customer service ambassadors, right, to um, to educate the customers um, when they first use it. And what we want to do is, uh, well, guide them through you know, um, the app and all, and then eventually they, they, they will, they'll be, you know, able to do it on their own. And it's right. been working. We have promotions and uh, all we need to, you know, to get them to try it for the first time. And then, and then they understand the whole process because it's something new to them. I think robots are not new. They have been around in the factories for years, making, manufacturing our, our computer chipsets and cars. But um, having robots in our daily lives, that's something new. And uh, it's been a big challenge um, to, to make that, you know, um, that, that seamless experience. Um, but that's, that's, that's something that we, we pride ourselves with, making it um, yeah. as seamless as possible. Yeah. Has, has there been, I mean, it always comes up as a controversy about, about jobs, right? And, and you've spoken to this in the past about uh, robots taking automation, taking people's jobs away. Uh, you don't quite see it that way. I don't. I think, in fact, I think um, 
we, we are taking away the repetitive tasks that aren't paying good wages, things that should have been automated long ago. Um, but with, with the proliferation of AI and, and robots that are now becoming more mainstream, um, we're beginning to see that happening with companies like ourselves, um, you know, in, in, in innovating and, and making it work. Um, but that's something that we are we're, we're taking away a job that shouldn't be done by humans. I think today we're hiring a lot more higher valued, um, you know, engineers. We have, you know, we, we're hiring more engineers than baristas now. I mean, Ella's, um, I mean, uh, we have a lot of robots ready to, to take on that job. Um, but it's really now the analytics, the, the data, um, you know, um, the efficiency and of, of running the business that we're looking at. So we're hiring much higher valued um, workers now. Yeah. And, 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 and Ella is not the, the only thing you're working on here. You, you've become really a, a, a digital company, an Internet of Things company, as opposed to a coffee company. Yeah, I mean, coffee is something, um, it's a start. It's something we know how to do well. And there's clearly a need for great coffee. Um, and, and we want to solve that. That's the first step. Um, we have a, uh, a company that came to us and they spent two years talking to, their, so their equipment uh, company um, supplying to the um, hotels and restaurants uh, around the world. And um, they, this, their innovation team spent two years uh, researching um, and interviewing a lot of the customers. And um, the, the, the common problem and um, solution they're looking for is to automate the process. So they, they, they're in the business of doing panini grills and all. So they, we, we, uh, they came to us and said, Keith, you know, well, I, you, know you have a working model with Ella. Maybe perhaps we could um, have that integrated with our systems. So we're in the process of doing that. And um, I, I think in time to come, you, you'll see Ella, um, you know, dishing out nice hot paninis as well. So that's, you know, it's going to evolve. The way we built Ella is modular and she's, she's, she's going to learn. She's going to do a lot more tasks. Um, and, and from there, we, we, you know, and it's also the data and understanding how users are interacting with, with, with robots. It's fascinating. Um, so I always, you know, me and my team were like, our customers is a big range. You know, if you're in a factory, you have a very uh, fixed environment, you know, it's always that, you know, um, it's as much easier in the factory. But when you're in commercial kind of setting, you have young to old. We have customers as old as about 75 years old downloading the app and um, and then paying and ordering from Ella um, to young teenagers. So, you know, they think differently. And uh, how do you ensure that the robot is um, is intuitive enough for, for all different um, ages, right? So that's, yeah. that's the fun us yeah I, I was gonna ask you know any any sci-fi movie you see at some point the robot always goes out of control a little bit have you had any had any 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 cautionary tales to tell any challenges with, with oh, trying to get course. this story? i mean um in the early days you know you don't know what you don't know right and uh, we had robot crashes we had robots that um spill coffee and uh you know but we learn we learn from that um but most importantly we, we progress right we, we learn and we, we improve and today our we, we, I mean, these occurrence don't happen that often anymore. Um, and and we're, as we scale up, you know, and, but what's most important is our happy customers. And we see a big interest in the corporates. Um, we have an uh, Ella in SAP's office. 
So we did an exhibition with them and uh, the bosses saw it. And when they were revamping or uh, renovating their office for the hybrid um, office um, environment, you know, post pandemic. And they were like, this is a good time to get Ella in. So um, we worked with the designers and we got Ella in the office. And I'm quite happy that, um, you know, we, we, we went down and met the, uh, the staff. There are about a thousand staff in the office um, and they're working on a hybrid arrangement right now. Um, and so Singapore just lifted the uh, COVID restrictions completely right. um, just uh, a month ago. Um, so we're seeing a lot more staff coming back to work and um, sales are, are flying. So, um, and I remember a staff was like, Keith, I go down to Starbucks three times a day for my coffee. I don't do that anymore. Alice satisfies all my cravings. So yeah. There you go. Happy. Keith Ten. Uh, a very interesting story, um, and I look forward. And we'll see where we'll see Ella pop up elsewhere. I'm sure. Thanks so much for your time tonight, and for Thank you so sharing much. your company Thank story you. with us. I appreciate it. The foreign affairs ministers of all three Baltic states are in Canada this week: Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, uh, including for talks today with their Canadian counterpart Melanie Jolie in Quebec City. Top of mind, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and NATO's commitment to protecting those members on the front lines, the eastern flank, such as the Baltics, and other pressing issues such as food and energy security. Imagine just last week, Lithuania became the first European country to entirely end its reliance on Russian energy. I mean, entirely. No oil, no gas, no electricity, nothing. And it wants other European nations to follow suit to cut off the Kremlin's most vital source of income, a source of income that is fueling the war in Ukraine. So how did they do it? Well, joining me now is Gabrielis Landsbergis. He's the foreign affairs minister of Lithuania, and he uh, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I know it's hard to overstate, but for listeners who may not be familiar, just how much of an impact did Russia's decision to invade Ukraine 100 days ago now have on your country? Well, they reshaped the reality uh, that we are living in. Uh, you know, we tended to still believe that um, the environment is safe and the borders are, or at least should be, inviolable. And the people will have still have a right to exist uh, peacefully. And that's no longer the case, uh, especially for those countries who are so close to Russia. And in, as you know, you know we share a 700 kilometers border with Belarus, which is also part of, you know, part of the aggression. And also with the Russian enclave, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, to our west. So the reality is truly different after the 24th of February. I know that you've been asking uh, in the past for uh, more NATO presence uh, on the so-called eastern flank, specifically in the Baltic nations. Uh, was that part of your discussions today? Did you did, did that come up with our foreign affairs minister today? Yes, absolutely. Um, because the, the conversation is still ongoing. Uh, with the, the main decisions about uh, NATO's posture on the eastern flank has to be made in Madrid in uh, uh, three weeks or so. Uh, so obviously, uh, it was a part of our conversations, and also because Canada plays a big role in uh, in defense of the of the Baltic states. And as uh, I mentioned before, the situation, the security situation in the regions has changed dramatically, and therefore all three Baltic states very much are looking forward to uh, to NATO's uh, to change in NATO's posture in the region that would match uh, the Russian activities on the other side of the border. What would that look like? Uh, I gather it would be more of a permanent presence than a, than a rotating one. 
Well, you know, rotations are different. Uh, you know, it could be what is called a heel-to-toe rotation. That means that basically the troops will, would always be in, 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 in the Baltic territory. Uh, what is more uh, specifically needed is in the increased size of, of the uh, deployments in the Baltic states. Now we all have uh, battalion size uh, deployments. We're looking for the brigade size. So that's three times of increase. Then the change in strategy. You know, we would like uh, what is said, you know, of defense of every inch of a territory that that to actually become a NATO, NATO strategy that we would deny a possible aggressor uh, any inch of, of, of the Baltic territory. And also what we're seeing happening in Ukraine, you know, the, the territories are being shelled and there's a lot of air activity. So we would like that to be also reflected that NATO would deploy additional air defense units, uh, be it planes, be it uh, missile defense on the Baltic territory. So this is our uh, hopes for the Madrid summit. Are you hearing what you're hoping to hear from Canada and other allies going into that meeting? Well, honestly, we don't have very uh, specific answers as of yet. Uh, that I have to be honest with you that the level of ambition uh, from our allies fell significantly since the war started. Um, maybe, I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell, to tell why. You know, from, from our perspective, Lithuania has committed to uh, increase our defense spending from 2% of GDP that we had before the war. So now we are already not just committed, but we already have it in our budget that we're spending 2.5%. And we're even for the next year, we're looking beyond that. So, you know, we're doing quite a lot of steps, you know, to increase our defense. And we would like to, uh, our allies to, to match it because we believe that this is the, probably one of the most vulnerable points in the whole NATO territory. Unfortunately, that has not met now with, a, it has not been met with a lot of enthusiasm from, from our allies. I imagine, you know, th- this invasion, it will always be front of mind for, for Baltic states. But are you worried at all by what you're seeing, what looks like specifically in America, but a bit of fatigue with the Ukraine crisis? Yes, this is, this is uh, truly um, a worry. Uh, we're seeing that the war w- would and, and possibly will drag on for a long time. That means that Ukraine will have to be supported longer than expected. So, you know, one of the things that we've been discussing with uh, during our meetings here in Canada was also the commitment that is needed from the West that it's not, we won't be tied, we won't get tied, we will continue on supporting Ukraine. It's very important commitment uh, to, first of all, to Ukraine, but also to the, to the other countries, you know, be it Baltics or be it other countries who are watching this conflict very closely, understanding, you know, what are the uh, thresholds uh, of the Western uh, commitments and fatigue also. You know, when does the West get tired? When you look at what's happening, and we're 100 days into this war now, we know there are more and better weapons showing up soon. At least we've seen more commitments from uh, from Western partners of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, is this a, still a war do you think Ukraine can win? I don't think that there's another, another possibility. Uh, Ukraine has to win this war uh, because any other... Uh, option would be just um, another war in the in the near future. That means that if Ukraine would be forced to lay down the arms, to seize the territory, to sue for peace under you know under Russian conditions, so that it gives Russian uh, Russians a victory, 
so from our perspective, so from our regional perspective, it is very clear that it just uh, it would just delay another war. So when we talk about off ramps for Vladimir Putin, that's certainly not language that you're in favor of, obviously. No, uh, you know we we did that in 2008 when he first attacked uh, Georgia. 2014, when he first attacked Ukraine, uh, we always had this, uh, I mean, we as, you know, as a Western uh, community, we had this idea that, you know, if we, if we agree with the conditions that were given to us by Putin, maybe he won't attack anymore. So it's, it's the third time that he's doing that. And obviously that the, I see no reason why he would not do that again, given the possibility and now it's up to us to either to give him this possibility, what you call an off-ramp, just basically not to return uh, home with, uh, with a loss, but return to home with a victory and prepare for the new war. And of course, countries such as yours would be on the front line, of pr- presumably of any new Russian aggression after this. Exactly. This is, this is the main worry, that the next possible step of escalation from Russian side is, is trying their luck in, in NATO territory. You know, because their their thinking and their rationale is uh, is different than we thought it could be. Uh, you know, they they went to Ukraine. You know, they they you know they got significant losses there. You know, they lost more than thirty thousand troops there. Uh, big big amount of tanks and and, and other um, equipment. So, but that still gives. Uh, us, you know, that that allows us to think that they might be thinking of something like that in in NATO countries. But maybe we will we won't react. Maybe we will be too slow to react. Maybe we will would be so afraid of escalation that we would just seize parts of territory that they would be uh, trying to grab. So it is truly worrying what we're seeing and trying to figure out how that would work out in in the possible future conflicts. I'm speaking with Gabrielas Landisburgis. He is the Foreign Affairs Minister of Lithuania. He's visiting Canada this week for meetings. Uh, up next, Lithuania just announced that it had completely cut itself off from Russian energy. It's certainly uh, urging the rest of the European Union, of which it's a member, as well as a NATO member, to do the same. And we'll talk about how it managed that feat and how others can follow its lead after this. I'm speaking this half hour with Gabrielis Landis Burgess. He's the Foreign Affairs Minister of Lithuania. He's in Canada this week visiting. Uh, he's been in Quebec City with our Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jali, as well as other uh, representatives, Foreign Affairs Ministers from other Baltic states, uh, heading to Toronto for meetings uh, on uh, Friday. Um, it, it was quite the news story around the world, uh, Mr. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, the about Lithuania managing to completely cut itself off from Russian energy. Uh, that was a huge step. How did you manage it? Well, I think that the biggest step that we took was uh, cutting off the uh, gas and decoupling ourselves from you know from gas supplies from Russia. I should say that the, our story began in two thousand and eight. Uh, it was a, a, a peak, uh, probably when the Russia. Uh, truly played uh, their energy cards politically in Lithuania, increasing energy prices uh, that we were paying the, the highest price for our heating in the whole European Union. So then we decided that we will be building our uh, own LNG terminal. Uh, we finished building in 2014. And then basically we, uh, you know, we, we've entered the global market to, to purchase the gas from wherever we want. And, um, since then, we, we've been doing that, and our prices dropped uh, almost 50%, if you, know, if you count the year by year. Um, later, uh, when the first announcements appeared uh, that the war might be 
um, happening in, in our region uh, that Russia is preparing to attack Ukraine, uh, we started looking for a potential new contracts globally, you know, where could we buy uh, gas for our LNG terminal? So we pre-purchased several shipments of, of gas uh, even before the war. So when the war started, we were able to be the, the first ones to uh, completely cut off ourselves from Russian contracts and stop Russian uh, gas imports because we, we've been preparing for that. Um, it was easier a bit with oil. Uh, it was a general decision uh, made to, together with, uh, with Polish government so that we will be uh, no longer purchasing oil. We managed to start shipping uh, our oil imports from, from other countries. And the last step was that we're no longer importing our electricity with the help from our, our partners uh, like Sweden and, uh, and, and Poland and, and others where who can provide us with uh, enough electricity for, for our needs. You've said in the past that this is language Russia understands, that, that Putin may ignore a lot, but he doesn't ignore that because it really is the lifeblood of their economy. Well, absolutely. I think that, you know, he's been building uh, dependency, our dependency, Western dependency on energy exports from Russia for quite a while. So obviously for, for him strategically, he's been thinking that, you know, anything can happen. You know, he can attack uh, neighboring countries, but the West will not be able to decouple because we're so dependent. And uh, I think that uh, seeing countries decouple and now sanctions being implemented even on uh, on oil imports, I think that's a, a huge blow to him and on his even worldview, I would say. This has come up at the European Union. Uh, there was debate over this. There was an agreement uh, that was released uh, recently. Uh, did it go far enough? And where is the why are countries did it go far enough, I guess? And why are countries finding it hard to follow in your footsteps? Well, <clears throat> uh, the way that the European Union works, it's um, it's that we need to find a, every time we make a decision, a difficult political decision, we need to find a consensus between the 27 countries. Uh, and uh, 27 ministers have to decide on what is the uh, what is a potential um, step forward. So the the last step that we took, the six package, so to say, which included part of oil imports, part of ban on oil imports from from Russia, was was particularly difficult. It took more than a month to debate it, and uh, you know quite large concessions have to be made upon the request of several member states. Uh, but still, you know. A, I can admit that it's it's too little, you know, it's it's much less than Lithuania could have wanted or proposed, uh, but still is somewhat a way a way forward. And uh, hopefully more steps will follow. And I'm still hoping that this is truly not the last one. Because we have seen, I mean, we, we understood, of course, that Hungary was standing in the way that some of the, uh, uh, there was a few others as well. But but do you see, for the big ones like Germany, do you see that happening? Are, are, do you think they'll be able to live up to these commitments that they've made? Well, I believe that there's a huge pressure from uh, in in every in every country. Uh, this is this is my where you know where people are truly asking their governments to cut off ties with Russia, energy, be political ties, uh, and uh, there's also you know green movement which has been prevailing you know through us for the, through the last decade, and it's also building up pressure. Like you know, we're not only supporting Russia in the wake of war in Ukraine, but also. 
uh, we're importing fossil fuels when we're supposed to go to go green. So I believe that this this pressure creates a momentum for for change and for positive change. As a last question, I don't know if this came up or not, but certainly in this country, there's been a lot of talk about us helping to provide Europe with the LNG it's looking for, such as countries such as Lithuania. Was that topic raised at all uh, in your conversations uh, in Canada so far? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Canada truly can do a lot uh, in assisting Europe in its in this uh, difficult, quite difficult time uh, when we're trying to decouple uh, from from Russia. And uh, I honestly believe that you know, in many cases, Canada has has proven time and time again that it's a really a reliable uh, partner in, in Mexico. So energy is a very logical sphere where uh, Europe and and Canada could cooperate. Gabriela Slendisburgis, thank you so much for your time tonight. Enjoy the rest of your stay in our country. Thank you so much. Thank you for the questions.